exciting it's really fun it's so fun to celebrate Easter with people that we love too and it just seems right that we have the tables and our families and people sharing with each other on this Easter we um, yeah I feel like God has some things for us today and uh, why don't we just let's let's just have a word of prayer one more time and uh, do do this let's put our hand put your hand on your heart uh, with one hand and with the other hand just put it on your mind put it somewhere on your head and so, Lord, this morning we come to you and we thank you, God, that you have some things in store for us. I thank you, God, today that there are some things you want to do in our minds. Lord, I believe today that there are some, some ways of thinking, some pathways that have become hab- habitual. They've become the way that we think and the way we do their lives. And it really is contrary to the truth of who you are and what you think of us and what you have for us. And so with our hand on our minds right now, we say, Holy Spirit, come and have your way. If there's some thinking that needs to change, if there's some, some neurons and, and transmitters and different things that have been firing in the wrong direction, we just, we just say, Holy Spirit, come and have your way with our minds. Can you just say that with me? Have your way. Have your way, Holy Spirit. And then with your hand on your heart, well, Lord, we just say, Holy Spirit, come and do the deep work in our hearts. Lord, for some here this morning, there is damage in the heart. There are some things that have been spoken over them. There are some words, maybe in the past, even in the recent past, that have been spoken. And we have accepted them as truth versus a lie. And so, Lord, in our hearts right now, we say, come and do healing work today. Come and do healing work today. Hallelujah. Yeah. I feel like it's in the area of love today. There are some people that, that you, you've, uh, you've doubted God's love for you. And you almost feel like you have a thought that it's too late, that you've, you've missed it somehow. And I believe God wants to tell you today, it's not too late. Can you say that with me out loud? Say, it's not too late. It's not too late for God. It's not too late for And you know, the story of Easter, you know, as we're going to look at this morning, in so many ways, it looks like it's too late. It looked like... You know, man, it, it, it didn't happen the way it was supposed to happen. I'm sure the disciples, as we're going to look at a little bit today, it wasn't, it wasn't the way they envisioned this thing going down. In retrospect, of course, historically, we get the advantage of looking back on some events. But one of the things I want you to do today and want us to do today is that thing I like to say every once in a while. I want you to strap on your sandals. Put on your togas, <laughs> you know, whatever. Uh, let's, let's jump into this story and let's... let's not think of it in terms of 20th century or 21st century, you know, humanoids in America looking back on the past of some weird nation in other time in history. I want us to immerse ourselves in the story this week. I want us to just imagine that we're with the disciples walking. Last Sunday, you know, we celebrated Palm Sunday. Of course, that's when Jesus comes to Jerusalem and everybody's cheering and Hosanna and the, the, the place was literally rocking right? The place is literally rocking. The city, the Bible describes it as if an earthquake is happening. There's so much energy. And if you can imagine this, Jerusalem is just about one square mile, okay? And every year at Passover, all Jews, all Israelites are required to come to Jerusalem. So the whole country is supposed to jam into a one square mile city that normally accommodates, you know, maybe 50,000 people. Can you imagine the density of it? Have you ever been in a huge crowd and it's hard to move around, right? Some of you at the mall or maybe at Great America or some of these kind of things, you know. Can you imagine? Not only is it really busy with all kind of people, but do you know why they're all there? Because they're all wanna, they all have to worship and they all have to offer a sacrifice for their family. 
They're celebrating Passover. Of course, that goes back to the, to the days in Egypt when the, when the Israelites are in bondage and slavery and God is taking them out of Egypt and Pharaoh and the, and the plagues of Egypt. And the 10th one was when the death angel was going to come over the whole land of Egypt and was going to kill the firstborn son of all the people in the land. And so God told the Israelites, says, listen, kill a lamb, take its blood and put it over the doorframe of your house and the angel, the death angel, when it comes, will, are you with me, pass over your house and go on. So the way that you save yourself and you save your family is through the shedding of blood, right? And so, <laughs> this is something I've done, I was doing a little, little research this week. If you want to read an interesting book, I read, well, an audio book actually this week, Killing Jesus by O'Reilly, uh, Bill O'Reilly, okay? You know his series, Killing Killing everybody. He's got all these killing books. You know. But I just, you know, killing Jesus, that's interesting. And it's kind of from a more secular perspective than a, than a, but it was very interesting. And he described Passover, and he and the other writer, they described it. And here's, what, here's the thing. Upwards of several hundred thousand people are all jammed in this city. And can you imagine each one of them needing to sacrifice a lamb? How many sheep are we talking about? Can you just imagine the cacophony of sound even in the city? So much so that the whole hillsides around Jerusalem are filled with campers, people camping out, you know, their tents and the whole thing, and their sheep and their kids and just the whole celebration thing. And, of course, the temple is just booming with, with trumpets and worship and all of this. And in the midst of it all, they're killing, they kill these sheep, right, for the remission of sin. And it's really important that we understand that because as Jesus is coming to this spot, as he's coming up even to last Sunday with Palm Sunday, as Jesus is coming in, one of the verses in the Bible says that Jesus set his face like a flint for Jerusalem. Right? In other words, he knew he was a man on a mission. He was a man that needed to accomplish something. And, of course, he tries to tell the disciples, this is going to happen, you know, boys. This, I'm going to die. I'm going to do the whole thing. They're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's get rid of Rome. <laughs> let's, let's, let's take out the Romans. Let's get our country back. You know, let's do this whole thing. They did not hear what Jesus was saying. But he knew that just like in the words of John the Baptist, when he was at the beginning of his ministry, when Jesus was going to be baptized in the River Jordan, do you remember the phrase? John picks him out of a crowd and says, look. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. What a prophetic word, right? Even before all of this happens, he has already been pronounced as the Lamb of God who's going to take away the sins of the world. And so Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. He's got all his crew with him. There's an, and there's an energy happening in the city, in the country. Jesus has been doing miracles. He's just on the heels of raising Lazarus from the dead. His buddy Lazarus was in the grave four days right? And he was already starting to stink. And Jesus says, hey, why don't you come on out of there? Boom, Lazarus is raised. How many of you think that word probably spread pretty, pretty quickly, right? So he's healing blind eyes. Lepers are having a baby smooth skin again. The dead are being raised and food is being provided and all these things. And he's coming to Jerusalem and he comes in the city, ta -ta -ta, you know, Palm Sunday. It's this huge fanfare. It's a huge thing. So then throughout the week, Things kind of settle down for him. Jesus gets in the worshiping mode. He goes to the temple. You know, he, uh, well, this is another sermon for another day, but he, he, he disrupts the trade in the temple and the, temp, you know, the coins and the, and, the, and, the, and the thieves robbing the, the worshipers. He, he lays into the Pharisees. He, does, he, he calls them a brood of vipers, he, flaming hypocrites. I mean, he's... he's He's in fine form. He's knocking over tables. He's talking to, you know, he's preaching against the Pharisees. But he's also teaching truth to the people that would hear it. He's got a full week. We come up to the end of the week, Thursday night. And, we, of course, they're coming into the Passover. And so Jesus calls his disciples. He says, listen, I want to celebrate the Passover with you one more time. In fact, the Word of God says that he says, I have earnestly desired to get to this dinner with you boys because from here on in, it's all going to start to lay out. It's all going to start to make sense. So he has Passover. They come together. Of course, he's betrayed by Judas and the whole thing. 
And uh, we find, you know, the, the week is gearing up. And so after Passover and after they celebrate together, Jesus takes the disciples and he pulls them back and he says, all right, guys, let's go to that familiar garden, that quiet place, and we're going to have a little time there. I want you to come away with me. And here's what I want you to do this morning. On your, on your, on your tables, you have some, some verses. You have some, uh, basically, it's the whole story. And we're going to try to move through this <laughs> as best we can today. And here's what I'd like you to do. At various times this morning, I'm, gonna have, I'm just going to stop, and I want you to read through the verses together. And so the first one I want you to read this morning is, is in Matthew 26, 36 through 40. We're going to be reading out of the, the Passion Translation. And uh, why don't you just, uh, as a group, maybe read it, maybe have one person read, or maybe take turns. But I want you just to read this verse together at your table, all right? Ready, set, go. When you're done, just wave your hand so we know. Okay, good. Everybody, we're there. You know, this story is, is this, this part of the story has always intrigued me so much. And it, it's, uh, there have been times where I have been distraught or I've been stressed, and I know you have two different times, but do you realize that when Jesus is in the garden, In Luke, in Luke's gospel, it says that he's so distressed and he's so overcome with the weight of what it is he's doing that he sweat drops of blood. Now, I don't know if anybody else has had this, but I've never been that, you know, intensely stressed about something that I sweat. And it actually is a medical thing. It's called hematidrosis. And it says that under extreme stress, blood vessels expand so much that they break where they come in contact with sweat glands. The suffering individual actually sweats blood. So this is actually a medical condition that, that, takes, that can happen. Can you imagine the immensity of what Jesus is going through? I mean, by the very nature that he's sweating blood tells you that there's something really deep and powerful going on inside of him. John McDonald, in his book, The Murder of Jesus, he says, in short... Jesus was grieved because he knew that all the guilt of all the sin, of all the redeemed, of all time would be imputed to him, and he would bear the full brunt of divine wrath on behalf of others. The Holy Son of God, who had never known even the most insignificant sin, would become sin an object of God's fury. The thought of it literally made him sweat blood. (laughs) Oftentimes we say there's no no joy like the joy of sins forgiven. Don't you love that feeling when your sins are forgiven? But doesn't it always feel like a weight is lifted off of you? You know what I'm saying? You remember that feeling of your sin? And maybe remember if the first time when you first accepted Christ, some of you can remember that, oh, oh. It's like you didn't realize the weight you were carrying. Can you imagine for the billions of people throughout all of time that Jesus actually bore that guilt, that shame, that weight, and he was coming into conflict with that. Like he knew that what he was about to do through the, his, 
his torture and the murder on the cross and all of this process, all of the weight of all the sin of all mankind was on, was on him. And I don't know about you, but I think if I'd have been, I probably would have been sweating drops of blood too, right? Because that is a lot of weight. That is a lot of sin. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, it actually says this. He made him, Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us. Anybody here thankful this morning that you don't have to carry the weight of that sin? Wow. But you know what's interesting as I read that verse? I don't think Jesus, and I may be different theology than maybe some others, I, I, but I have a feeling that Jesus wasn't praying really to get out of the deal. Because it says that before the dawn of time, this was the plan of God. And he's God. So it seems a little weird that in the garden he'd be like, okay, just kidding, I don't want to do this. You know, like, I, don't, I don't think that's what he was doing there. In fact, you know, the familiar verse that most people know, if they have no one verse, it's going to be John 3.16, right? John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. See, Jesus was on a mission right from the very beginning to save mankind. In fact, it says about him at one point that the Son of Man, him, Jesus, came to seek and to save that which was lost. He actually was looking, at, he was looking to eradicate sin for all mankind for all of eternity. And the weight in the garden that I'm sure he felt of that, I mean, I, I honestly can't put myself in his shoes, but I can almost grasp it just based on the, on the weight of the sin that I've had to carry in my life at various times, right? And I just, I don't think he was praying to have the torture and the cross taken from him because this was the plan. I believe that he didn't want to die in the garden with the weight of all that sin, I have a feeling in his humanity, the weight of all that sin could literally have crushed him and killed him right there in the garden. So when he says, take this from me, I, I believe he's saying, don't let me die prematurely in the garden. I need to get to the cross. I need to take care of this thing for all mankind because the prophets have foretold it. The prophets have said that this is the way that the Son of Man, the Messiah, needs to handle this. And so he moves in the garden. And, of course, if you know the story at all or have seen the Passion of the Christ or the Son of God movie or some of these different ones, you know that the traitor uh, um, Judas betrays him with a kiss and the guards show up. They bind him and they take him before the San Sanhedrin, the Jewish religious legal court. And of course, we don't have time to go through the whole story today, but how many have ever heard of the phrase a kangaroo court? You ever heard of this phrase? A kangaroo court? Basically, it just means it's a mockery. It's not a real court. It's, it's just it's a joke, right? Well, we find that that's what happened. They, they take him through a basically kangaroo court. They trump up some charges. They get some false witnesses. And three and a half years of Jesus <laughs> telling the Pharisees that they are completely leading the people astray and that the people shouldn't trust the religious people, three and a half years he's been saying this. Can you imagine the frustration on those guys? They finally have him in a room and they start beating them. The, the, the soldiers start beating them. They're, 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 they're taking them to task. And, and all, that, all that emotion of the Pharisees is poured out on Jesus. And then they moves them from not only the religious council, but because they know they can't kill him. Because they're under Roman rule, it says that they can't crucify him themselves. They can't kill Jesus because the Romans rule them. Only the Romans can put the man to death like that. So they have to take him before the, ruler, the Roman ruler, Pilate. He's the only person in Jerusalem that can issue the death notice. And Pilate really doesn't want to kill Jesus. If you read through the narrative, uh, I would encourage you to do that even this today. If you read through the narrative in the Gospels, Pilate is trying to find a way out, isn't he? Man, he is backpedaling. He's, he's scoping deals. He's moving things around because he knows there's something about this guy, Jesus, as he interviews him that's completely different. And on top of that, how many of you have husbands, how many of you have wives that have a dream or they think something and they tell you about that thing? 
you would be, especially you younger men, with younger husbands, listen to your wives. <laughs> Amen from the corner. All right. So the night before, Pilate's wife has a dream, and it scares her, it shocks her, and she sends a message to Pilate and says, don't have anything to do with this guy. Back off on him. Don't, you know, really, take it easy, because this, is, this isn't good. And so she's warning him. His own spirit is warning him. But the pressure and the, and the pressure and the pressure from the, from the Jewish religious uh, council and all of those Pharisees, they keep push, push, push. And so finally, Pilate says, well... Why don't we just beat him really bad? The Romans were famous for a couple of things. Well, a lot of things. But when in the area of torture and death, they were famous for two things. One was what is called a Roman scourging. And that was where they would beat a man with a special whip to, have you ever heard the phrase, within an inch of his life? Right? Within an inch of his life. This was really a Roman thing. They had gotten so good on how they beat people and how they, how they did this scourging that, that it, was, it was believed that if someone had 40 lashes, they would die. And so they would have 40 minus 1, which was 39. And so 39 lashes were to be applied to a prisoner. So Pilate thinks he can get out of this whole mess with the religious the Jerusalem and the religious council and all the pressure. He feels if I just give Jesus a good scourging, That'll be enough for these guys. And I don't know, some of you already know this. Some of you, how many of you have actually seen The Passion of the Christ? Have you seen the movie? So a good portion of you. The Romans were really good at this. They actually had a whole squad of soldiers that were specifically assigned to beating or scourging people. And then that also, they were assigned to the crucifixions which was a strictly Roman way of putting someone to death. And doing a little study even this week and reading in that Killing Jesus book, this was a death squad. Do you remember during World War II when they had the SS and the Gestapo and all that stuff, and you had the ones that were set aside to, to get the, the Jews into the prison camps, and then they devised ways of killing the Jews, and it was just, you know, Schindler's List kind of, you know, horrible stuff? Those soldiers that were really good at killing the Jews, and that, they actually took their cues from the Roman death squads in this day. So if you kind of get a mental picture, the horribleness of Nazi Germany and the horribleness of those men that would do those horrible things to people, that was based on these soldiers. They were depraved men who got joy out of bringing carnage to other people and destruction. They actually enjoyed putting people on the cross. They actually enjoyed ripping the flesh from, from the skin and the bones of the people that they were assigned to. These were, well, the word sadistic. These were sadistic soldiers. And so they completely strip Jesus. They tie him to a post. And the Romans, this death squad, they begin two soldiers, one on each side. They would take... Uh, well, two of them would do the scourging, and then a third with an abacus would count each lash so they didn't go past 39. So it was a very, you know, specific way, and they were really good at it. They were experts. Two soldiers would have taken turns lashing and torturing and scourging Jesus, the third counting. They would have used a weapon called a flagellum. It was a whip that had several leather strands with lead balls or shards of bone attached to the end. You may have heard the phrase, the cat of nine tails. It was a whip that had nine different leather things on it, and at the end of it, bone, metal, sharp objects, with the intent of when the lash was laid on someone's back, that it wasn't just hurting their skin. It would actually rip the skin right off their back. You can imagine one of those strokes across the back and the pain and the nerve endings and the ripping. The cuts inflicted by this whip could actually rip open the flesh, exposing muscle, bone, and even internal organs. Jesus would have lost a significant amount of blood after his scourging. 39 times, lash on his back, back and forth with no reprieve, one after the other. Sadistic soldiers laughing and reveling in the tearing down of this man. Later on, we find that Jesus cannot even carry his own cross up to Calvary, and you can imagine why he would have trouble doing that. 
Most doctors that have looked at this would, would, uh, would say that he went into hypovolemic shock. Hypo meaning low, vol, vol means volume, and it has to do with the amount of blood. So much blood is lost that they faint and collapse. They can't even hardly function. When the scourging is done, the Roman scourging, most prisoners are completely unrecognizable. And the time this was done with Jesus, most people probably wouldn't even recognize him. In Isaiah 53, the prophet, hundreds and hundreds of years before this, writes this about that day. It says in Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. There's a powerful words written so many years before that actually happened. And you know, it's interesting, isn't it? Jesus was God. He was fully human. He was fully God. Do you realize that, I mean, it, yeah, it almost is beyond comprehension the amount of pain and suffering that each lash would have been on his back. And my thought is this. He could have stopped it at any moment. He could have just said, okay, 38 lashes. I can't, that's enough. I can't do it anymore. But do you realize that every lash that he took on his back was for you and for me? You know, when we pray for words of knowledge and for healing before this, do you realize that when we say in Jesus' name, And we use that phrase, by his stripes we are healed. Do you understand? This is what we're talking about. By his stripes, those lashes, the tearing of the bone and the flesh and all of the horribleness of that whole event, it was for our healing. It was so that we can be healed. So when we say, you know, in Jesus' name be healed, I'm telling you, it's not just a phrase. This actually was the price that was paid on this day so that we would have healing, not only in our bodies, but be able to give it to others. In the garden previously, when he, in the Garden of Gethsemane, at one point Jesus is being, about to be taken away by the soldiers. Do you remember this? And Peter takes out his sword and he goes to cut off the servant's ear. And Jesus goes, puts that thing back on. And he turns to Peter and he says this. He says, Peter, put your sword down. In essence, if I wanted to do it with military might, I would have done it that way. Because he says this. Don't you realize that I could ask my heavenly Father for angels to come at any time to deliver me? And instantly he would answer me by sending 12 legions of angelic hosts to come and protect us. A legion was made up of 6,000 to 8,000 soldiers. Can you imagine? At any moment, Jesus could have snapped his fingers and said, okay, enough is enough. 72,000 angels in full battle array would have showed up. And how many of you think they would have crushed those Roman, sadistic, <laughs> evil people, right? They would have no problem with a little cat of nine tails because we got a 10-foot tall angel about to take him out, right? 72,000 of them in an instant could have been there. But Jesus said, nope. That's not the way it's going to get done. I have to take these lashes. I have to take this punishment for you. Of course, it would have been horrible enough just to end there, but it doesn't. Because out of that, they begin to take Jesus to the cross. And uh, this one's going to be a little harder to read, but I want you to read this at the table as well. Matthew 27, verses 27 to 31. And uh, why don't you just uh, take a few moments and read that, and then just motion to me when you're done, okay? Matthew 27, 27 to 31.
We good? So less than a week removed from Hosanna, hail to the king of the Jews, you know, conquering hero, all of that. Less than a week removed from that, we find Jesus in this despicable state, this horrific state. Historians and scholars believe that the crown of thorns was from a local bush that had flowers and different things on it, but the, the thorns were a good inch to an inch and a half long, and they were, they were big. And can you imagine the, the thorns being shoved into a skull? In addition to all the other pain he's got now, it's shoved into his head. And there's actually also a medical term for what he probably experienced, uh, trigeminal neurology. And it was this, when that much pain is inflicted on the top of the head, it actually brings uh, piercing pain and paralysis to the whole face and the skull in the face. And so the nerve endings of the whole head, obviously, tremendous, tremendous pain. And the soldiers are putting it on. You know, it's interesting. As we mentioned, Jesus could have stopped it at any time. But in Hebrews 12, 2, it says this, speaking to the, to the church, it says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. I don't, I don't know if any of us had been there would have looked on this and thought any even remotest, tiniest bit of joy would be present in any of that. I feel like if somebody cuts me off in traffic, I lose my joy sometimes. You know what I'm saying? Like even the smallest things can affect us in these ways. Can you imagine the, the abuse and the pain and the hurt that Jesus had? And yet it says, for the joy set before him. And you know what the joy that was before him? It was you. And it was me. We were the joy set before him. We were on his mind when all of these horrible things were happening. And, and again... I want you to do this. Strap on your sandals and get into the story because I'm not talking about the neighbor next to you. I'm talking to you. You were the joy set before him. See, sometimes we get that verse, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Well, guess what? Last time I checked, you and I were on this world. <laughs> you and I were here on this planet. There's nobody left out from the joy set before him. You and I were the joy set before him. So they bring Jesus to Golgotha, Matthew 27, 33, which means skull hill. Interesting note that how many of you remember the story of David and Goliath? Remember the story of David and Goliath? So I was tell, talking to my kids about this yesterday, and they remember the story of David and Goliath where David takes the stone and sends it into Goliath's head, and Goliath dies. But you know what the rest of the story is? David comes over and grabs Goliath's sword and pulls that thing out. And what does he do? Woof. He, <laughs> he decapitates this huge, this huge Goliath, right? And, he, and it says that he takes his head. And tradition at this time was that Golgotha was the place of the skull because this is where Goliath's skull was buried. And so people throughout the history at the time... You know, Goliath and Golgotha have the same root word. And so it's the place of the skull or, or skull hill. And that tradition goes all the way back to David and Goliath. And I was thinking about that. I thought, you know, for most people, the story of Jesus and the cross isn't really a heart issue, is it? It's a mind issue. It's a, you know, that's, that's a fun story or that's a horrible story or that... It's for other people and different things. Most people, when I had you put your hand on your head this morning and pray as we started, most people have trouble with Jesus, not so much with their heart, but they have trouble with Jesus and the story of his redemption with their mind. And isn't it interesting that the very cross of Jesus has to penetrate Skull Hill in order for the cross to be effective? And I think, you know, this morning there are some of you in this place that you think, great Easter, nice dress up, nice pink shirt, Pastor Steve, you know, everything nice, going to have ham for lunch and the whole, you know, it's all well and good. But here's the deal. The cross of Jesus is the most important place in all of history. 
And the most times that we have to battle anything in regards to this is the crushing of the skull. You remember the, you remember the, uh, the story of, uh, of uh, well, let me just give it to you this. You ever heard the phrase, the crux of the matter? The crux of the matter? Do you know where that comes from? Right here. The crux of the matter. The crux means the cross. The crux of the matter means that the cross shoved into Skull Hill has to be dealt with in our minds, and it has to be something that becomes the choice and the place of decision. Because I will tell you this, whether you believe me or not, or whether you believe the story or not, Jesus is going to come at some point in human history. And every single one of us, within the sound of my voice, is eternal. Everyone here is eternal. You have a soul. And the decision has to be made at the cross. Because if you accept the cross, the Bible teaches that you will be saved. If you accept Jesus and his sacrifice and the forgiveness of sins, you will be saved. But the opposite is also true. If at the crux of the matter, you decide to reject the cross and reject his sacrifice, you are, you are more than willing, able to do that. But I will tell you, there is also an eternity for those that reject Christ. See, it was by love that kept Jesus in this whole thing. He knew that something had to be done about sin. And so we find that as they come to Golgotha, as they come to Skull Hill, it says that they brought Jesus to Golgotha, and there the soldiers offered him a mild painkiller, a drink of wine mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused it. Then they crucified Jesus, nailing his hands and feet to the cross. Of course, for the sake of time, we don't have, I don't have time to go into all of this, but you understand that the cross, they pulled the, they pulled the prisoner's hands wide, and the nail, a seven-inch spike, was a square spike with a sharpened edge, was driven through each wrist, right and left. And the legs were bent. And the same nail, another nail was driven right through both feet, one on top of the other. Most crucifixions lasted days. The way a prisoner died on a cross was a decision with every breath had to be made. The only way they were hung on the cross, the only way they're held on the cross was by this nail, one in each wrist and one through both feet. With every breath, a decision had to be made. Are they going to hang from their wrist or are they going to suspend themselves by their feet? Can you imagine the agony of trying to choose between those two horrible things? And so in order to take a breath, they would have to push up on the cross. They would push up their body, take a breath, and then drop back down. His back is already raw from the scourging. Can you imagine sliding up and down a hard wooden cross with every breath? The pain, the pain would have been unbearable. Lee Strobel in the book, The Case for Christ, Actually, the movie that's in the theaters right now. In his book, The Case for Christ, he says, the pain was absolutely unbearable. In fact, it was literally beyond words to describe. They had to invent a new word, excruciating. Literally, excruciating means out of the cross. Think of that. They needed to create a new word because there was nothing in the language that could describe the intense anguish caused during crucifixion. And again, he did it purposefully, with choice. The soldiers divided his clothing amongst themselves by rolling dice to see who would win them. And the soldiers stood there to watch what would happen and to keep guard over him. Above his head, they placed a sign that read, This is Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. I alluded to the book I was reading earlier this week, and it was brought to my attention What's going on in Jerusalem at this time? Anybody? What are they all here for? Passover. Celebration. Passover is a celebration. 
And do you realize that at the very moment that Jesus is on the cross, breathing up and down in agony and all of the horrific part of that, the Bible says that Golgotha is just outside of the walls of Jerusalem. Remember, it's only a square mile, and you got hundreds of thousands of people. And do you realize that at this moment, from noon until sundown on this day, is when they were sacrificing the lambs in the temple. So at the very time that Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, while he's on the cross, there's only a handful of people watching this at that time. While this is happening and he's breathing and coming up and down and taking all the weight of sin, he can literally hear the trumpets and the celebrations of people celebrating Passover and the cacophony of all the lambs bleeding, and they would literally be slicing the throats of the lambs and all the blood and all of that happening. While he's on the cross, he can hear all that happening in the temple, not a quarter mile away. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Do you realize that at that moment when Jesus was doing this, there was never going to be a need ever in the course of human history again for one more lamb to lose their life? Because it was always going to be him from here on down. You talk about the crux of the matter, right? This is the moment in history that divides everything. Even the calendar, right? What if it's before Christ and Annus Domini, right? A.D. and B.C. is split right here at this moment. The Old Testament and the New Testament are split at this moment. The Old Covenant and the New Covenant are split at this moment. He literally is the cross of all of human history. For three hours, Matthew 27, verse 45, if you want to look. For three hours, beginning at noon, darkness came over the earth. And at three o'clock, Jesus shouted with a mighty voice in Aramaic, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my Aramaic's good, right? You like my Aramaic? (laughs) My God, my God, why have you deserted me? You know, I can't even begin to imagine Jesus is with the Father and the Holy Spirit for all of eternity, right up until this moment, when all of the weight of all the sin of all the world is taken on his shoulders. Some who were standing near the cross misunderstood and said, he's calling for Elijah. One bystander ran and got a sponge, soaked it with sour wine, then put it on a stick and held it up for Jesus to drink. But the rest said, leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to recognize him. Isn't that interesting? Even at the most momentous point in human history, people don't get it. They're thinking, Elijah, Isaiah, here's a sponge, here's some drink. Like they had no idea what was actually happening. Verse 50. Jesus passionately cried out, taking his last breath, and gave up his spirit. At that moment, the veil in the Holy of Holies was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook violently. Rocks were split apart and graves were opened. Then many of the holy ones who had died were brought back to life and came out of their graves. And after Jesus' resurrection, they were plainly seen by many people walking in Jerusalem. Man, what power even in his death. We haven't even got to his resurrection yet. Just in his death, there's earthquakes and rocks. And I just... You know, of course, our minds are so 21st century, aren't you? But what's the first thing you think of? The, the Walking Dead, right? The, the show, like, like all of a sudden these people are popping up out of the grave and they're walking around. I'm thinking, that would have been insane. Wouldn't that have been crazy? And it doesn't just say recent either. It says that the graves of, of, the, of the holy ones who had died could have been, I mean, who knows? Maybe Joseph got up and started walking around. I mean, you know, who knows who it was? But there were literally dead people popping up at his death. People are popping up out of the grave and walking around, and there's earthquakes. Man, so much so that when the Roman military officer and his soldiers witnessed what was happening and felt the powerful earthquake, they were extremely terrified. They said, there is no doubt this man was the Son of God. Remember who we're talking about? This is the, the sadistic death squad crucifiers. When they encountered Jesus on the cross, they're like, hey, completely changed. This man was the son of God. 
Three days, he's in the tomb. What was that guy, the radio guy, the rest of the story? What was that guy's name? Paul Harvey, right? The rest of the story. <laughs> Matthew 28. Why don't you take your, uh, your, your, uh, your pages there? Matthew 28. Jesus is in the ground, in the grave for three days. As the Sabbath was ending at the first light of dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to take a look at the tomb. Can I just tell you, be careful what your plans are because oftentimes our plans and God's plans are not the same, aren't they? Can you imagine? I mean, they're in, uh, in, in death mode, you know. They're in, in, uh, in having a difficult time mode. You know, some of you know this week my dog Boomer passed away. And uh, Boomer had been with me for 14 years, and uh, he and I were buddies. And uh, I, uh, I never had to put a dog down before. I don't know if you ever have. All my other dogs had passed away different ways, hit by cars, whatever, all that stuff. But to actually say goodbye to someone I dearly loved, uh, someone, it was really hard on me and my family. And, uh, of course... It was interesting it happened on Easter week because the thought kept coming to my mind how painful it was for a dog to die in my life, right? And it's, it's real, don't get me wrong, but it's, it's a dog, you know? And he was my buddy and all that. And, and yet I looked at him and as I actually held him as, he, as his heart stopped beating. And I remember looking at him and just the, the finality of it all, right? And it's interesting I'm holding the dog, and he's alive, and then a few seconds later, his heart isn't beating anymore. Of course, we're crying. My dad's crying. My wife's crying. <laughs> it's just a horrible thing. Because it was so final. It was like, I'll never get to run with him again. I'll never get to prayer walk with him again. I'll never get to, to have him be at my, in my office or up and down the hallways and all those things, the hole he leaves in my life. And I can't imagine Mary and the Marys, the Bible calls them. There's several of them. They're going to the tomb, and three days they've been grieving. They've been going through this loss of this, of this dearly loved one. In some of the cases, he has redeemed them from prostitution and from wayward past and, and, and all of the things and the power and the, and the hope and the joy that he brought to their life. And, and they're, they're hopeless. It's done. It's over. They have no thought as they're coming to the grave that anything different is going to happen. Anybody got a smile on their face yet? Because they're not going to be sad for very much longer, right? They come to the grave, and it says this, that when Mary takes a look in the tomb, suddenly the earth shook violently beneath their feet as the angel of the Lord Jehovah descended from heaven. Lightning flashed around him, and his robes were dazzling white. The guards were stunned and terrified, lying motionless like dead men. Then the angel walked up to the tomb, rolled the stone away, and sat on top of it. I love, if there was any point in human history where if I had a time machine, I'd want to go back, I think this is one of the top five for me. <laughs> because wouldn't it have been hilarious? Like this massive stone, the Roman seal, nobody's getting in. Angel goes, yeah, whatever, boink, and he just, you know, just kind of give it a flick, <laughs> the, the thing rolls up, then he sits on it for good measure, you know, just to kind of be dazzling and be powerful, right? and just looking at him. I mean, how much fun would that have been, right? Mary and the women are breathless. Verse 5, the women were breathless and terrified until the angel said to them, there's no reason to be afraid. I know you're here looking for Jesus who was crucified. They were looking for a dead man, <laughs> right? Jesus who was crucified. He isn't here. He has risen victoriously, just as he said. Come inside the tomb and see the place where our Lord was lying. Then run and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And you know, I love that because what does the angel say to them? He says, come and see. You need to take a look. You need to experience the risen Savior. You were expecting a dead man? Look, just grave clothes, nothing else. He's not here. So many people get caught up in the religion part of it and, you know, like, uh, you know, the, the truth and the goodness of God. 
But I want to tell you something. He wants you to experience him. He doesn't want you just to know about him. He wants you to experience him. Come and see the risen Savior. Amen? So verse 8, they rushed quickly to tell his disciples, and their hearts were deep in wonder and filled with great joy. Along the way, <laughs> okay, sorry. They're running to the disciples, right? And they're excited, and they're like, oh, I can't believe what I just saw, and it's, imp- it's impossible, but it's real. Then it says, Jesus suddenly appeared in front of them and said, rejoice. <laughs> they were so overwhelmed by seeing him that they bowed down and grasped his feet in adoring worship. Oh, my word. I, I think yeah, God has a sense of humor. I think even Jesus has a sense of humor, right? Can you imagine? They're just excited. to run, And it's almost as if Jesus is hiding around the corner waiting for the Marys to come around. Bah! Here I am, right? He jumps down at them. Wow, they're freaking out. Rejoice, man. I mean, it's like, I just think it would have been one of the funnest scenes to ever see and to experience. The one they thought was dead, the one that they had seen with all the stripes and the nails and the hands and and all of that horribleness, he's standing right there and he says, rejoice. He jumps out at them. And, And I don't know, some of the different versions of the Bible speak different ways, but in one of the Gospels, Mary just wants to hug him. She just wants to jump on him. And he's like, hey, whoa, whoa, still got some things I'm going to do, but just hold on. We'll, we'll get to that, you know. But this desire in them just to embrace Jesus. Hmm. Why is this so important, folks, as we close today? The resurrection is so important for a couple of reasons. Number one, the cross is the crux of human history. You have to deal with the cross. Do I accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior, or do I, and I let him forgive my sins, or do I not do that? That's the choice everybody has to make. But part of the point of accepting Christ is not just your sins forgiven, but we get to live in the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. Let me give you a couple verses as we close today. Romans 8.11 says this, And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit, say it with me, who lives in you. Say it different. Say it me. Who lives in me. Folks, <laughs> here's the thing. You don't just try out Jesus. You don't just try out Christianity. When you accept Christ, the resurrected Lord lives in you. The power of the resurrection is now residing in you. So many times I've told you that that phrase that I just bugs me so bad. People say, well, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. No, you're not. You know what? You have the resurrected Savior living inside of you. The the power that raised Christ from the dead lives in you, and he lives in me. Ephesians 3.20 says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. Put your hand on your heart one more time. If you've accepted Christ, you have resurrection power. You don't need to live in defeat. You don't need to live in, in the sickness and the addictions and all of the horrible things that the enemy would want to bring. You have resurrection power in you. This morning as we close, if you've never accepted this love gift, if you've never come into the crux of the matter and made a decision for Christ, I want to give you an opportunity to do that this morning. It's really not complicated. I'll just be honest with you. It's not complicated. It's pretty simple. You just turn your life over to him. When someone gives their life to Christ, you're not in control anymore. You basically say this. I accept your forgiveness. I accept the blood that you shed on the cross. And I turn the keys over to you. Because the Bible says that he's our Lord and Savior. Our Savior and Lord. So if you accept his forgiveness of his shed blood on the cross, then he's your Savior. He saves you. The Bible says that when you do that, you are saved. You're born again. You're a new thing. It's awesome. But it's not just the the Savior part. It's the Lord part, which means he's the master. He's in charge. You don't get to do whatever you want to do anymore because that stuff is is cheap and hollow. He wants to give you new life. He wants to give you resurrection power. So why don't you stand with me this morning as we close?
I said it's not complicated. I didn't say it wasn't easy. It's just not complicated. It's simple. If you want to give your life to him, you say yes. Lord Jesus, forgive me of all my sin, the sin that you paid for, the sin that you took upon yourself with the the beating and the torture and your death on a cross. You took my sin on you. And so, Lord, I received that sacrifice, and I ask you to forgive me. I ask you to wipe me clean and make me whole. And now I give my life to you. I turn over control. I'm not in charge anymore. I give my life to you. If that's your prayer today, I'm going to add this. Lord, resurrection power is in the deal. It's part of what you did. It's the second half of Easter, if you will. The passion and the power are one. And so, Lord, I release resurrection power into those that have made that prayer today. And I say, Lord, let them know, not just in their minds, but in their heart, that the spirit of, who raised Jesus from the dead now lives inside of them. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. You know, i just do one more thing. Why don't you open your eyes just for a second? I ran across this quote this week. And sometimes when it comes to Jesus, when it comes to God... The enemy will tell you that you've gone too far, that you've done too much. You've sinned too much, or you, you know, there's just lies that, that you're not good enough, that you are less valuable than others, or God loves others more than you. He doesn't. In fact, turn to the person next to you and say, he loves me more. <laughs> That's really true, isn't it? He loves all of us more. I don't know how that works, but he does. And here's the thing. I ran into this quote. It was on Facebook. I just loved it. It says this. If you think you've blown God's plan for your life, rest in this. You, my beautiful friend, are not that powerful. <laughs> I just love that. You know what? The devil may tell you you're not good enough or your plans, oh, you'll never amount to this or this is all for someone. It's not. It's not too late. Guess what? It's just the beginning. Amen. So lift your hands one more time. I'm going to bless you as we go. Lord, I thank you today for this day that we get to celebrate, Lord. The the crux of the matter, Lord. The the thing that defines us and all of human history. And we just thank you for the cross. We thank you for all that sacrifice that you did it for us. And we just praise you for that. But Lord, we also bless and thank you that that, uh, the power of the resurrection that raised you from the dead lives in us. And, Lord, there is no lie, there is no purpose of the enemy that can derail what you have for us and the future and the plans that you have for each one of us. So I thank you, God, that we're not powerful enough on our own to derail your plans. We get to say, yes, Lord Jesus, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, in my life, and in the people around me. And we pray that in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. 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 Bless you, Lord. Hallelujah. All right, we'll see you next Friday, responding to The Voice. We'll see you on Friday, amen. I can see what is raging at my feet. I can feel the breath of those surrounding me. I can hear the sound of nations rising up. We will not be overtaken. We will not be overcome. I can walk down this dark and painful road. I can face every fear of the unknown. I can hear all God's children singing out. We will not be overtaken. We will not be